And turn with me, please, to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, reading to verse 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray to the Lord again. God, our Father, today, as your people, we submit to the authority of your word. Open our eyes, Lord, speak, for your servants listen. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture today. Um, it speaks to us on many levels. On one level, it speaks of the power of Christ's call and the glory of Christ's call. On another level, it speaks of the tenderness and the compassion of Christ's heart towards sinners. And yet, on another level, this passage thunders against us, and it rumbles with the authority of God. As in the words of Hosea, I have hewn my people by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. God's word today comes to us against the Pharisee and all of us. That part of us that is always self-righteously concerned about the sinner over there. And the sinner over there. And the sinner over there and finds himself or herself perplexed continually and even indignant that the community with sinners should be expected from the people of God. Luther, among many things helpful that he says, writes that our tendency to dissociate ourselves from the Pharisee when the gospel text is read is indicative of the great problem in our hearts. I'm so glad that I'm not like that Pharisee over there, we say automatically as we read the gospel story. And when that's our posture, Luther says, we misunderstand the text and we miss the great problem in our own wicked hearts. Well, first of all today, the call of Matthew is truly profound, and I want to look at that just for a moment. Remember today that this is an autobiographical account. Matthew is writing about himself. He's describing his own conversion to Jesus, and it's remarkably succinct. Matthew isn't compelled, uh, compelled to embellish anything. It's a very important moment for Matthew. It's a life-changing moment for Matthew. But Matthew, in his account, the person Matthew stays small, and Jesus looms large. And so it should be for all of us, <laughs> especially in an age that's caught in a, a frenzy of self-advertisement and self-sharing, Matthew's example here is surely helpful. 
What Matthew does share about himself, the selfie that Matthew takes, as it were, is the image of that which is unpopular and the image of that which is distasteful. Matthew doesn't take a flattering photo. He says simply there was a man sitting at a tax booth. Now, tax collectors in the first century Judea were generally despised as traitors to their own people. Tax collectors were compromisers. They were those who had betrayed their people to work for a foreign and Roman power. It's true that tax collectors generally had the reputation of being greedy, taking more than was their due. They took more than was necessary from the people. They, they swindled people. We see that in the account of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has uh, felt compelled to return money, money that he had taken um, unfairly. This is why, by the way, uh, uh, Jesus is compelled to affirm that Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham. Jesus is compelled to say this because Zacchaeus was understood to be a betrayer of his people. He too belongs to you, Jesus says. Because the tax collector was viewed as one who had rejected Jewish national identity and aspiration, Jesus had to bring him back into the fold of Abraham's people. That's why throughout the gospel, we find a number of moments where tax collector is automatically paired with the word sinner, as if it belongs there. Look up in the Jewish dictionary, look for the word tax collector, or look up the word sinner, and you find a definition for tax collector. That's how much it was identified. And Matthew says to us today very plainly, without trying to make himself look any bit better, that was me in the booth. But the call of Jesus is stronger than the shame of the place where Matthew sits. You'll notice that Matthew's calling is back to back with the healing of the paralytic. They are both called to rise and stand Both are called to get up, and Matthew's response to the command of Jesus here is no less miraculous than the command for the paralytic to rise. Jesus says simply to both, rise, get up, pick up your bed to the paralytic and go home, and now Jesus says to Matthew, rise, follow me. It's the same creative and healing word at work. The eternal Logos now creates a whole new world. He speaks a whole new world into the life of Matthew's formless and dark void of his heart. And this is always the story of conversion. It's always being begotten by the word of Christ's power. Get up from your sin, he says. And come and follow me. It's not always as easy as Matthew. Saul of Tarsus had to be blinded. C.S. Lewis had to come kicking and screaming through many years into the kingdom of God. Augustine laments late in his life, oh, too late. (laughs) Have I loved God? It took too long for me to get here. But when once Christ says, Let there be light. No one can stay in darkness. The genuineness of conversion always rests and only rests on the authority of Christ's command. Come, follow me, he says. 
We follow because Jesus calls us to follow. We continue to follow Jesus because the good shepherd won't stop talking to his sheep. (laughs) Not that way. This way. Not that way. This way. Come. Follow me, he says. Well, the conversion of Matthew now leads to this festal moment in Matthew's home. Matthew is so excited about what has happened that he's apparently called all of his tax collector friends to come and to feast with him and to meet this person, Jesus, who has set him free. And I think this is a compelling picture of the church, not only the place that is characterized by feasting and rest and godly leisure, but the place which is organized by people who are excited simply to share the news about Jesus. I am so moved upon by what Jesus has done for me that I want to share the news of the Master with whoever I see. And when that impulse begins to fade, and when that begins to flicker in us or in the church, we need to step back and reevaluate ourselves and remind ourselves what the church is all about. The Pharisees, however, clearly are not so enthusiastic. That Jesus, this teacher, and they use that word now with a derisive sneer, should identify with sinners like this is contrary, they believe, and they feel, to the appropriate worship of God. If your religious leader, your teacher, had any good sense about him, he wouldn't conduct himself so. They obviously don't have enough courage to go to Jesus himself, or else they don't want to associate themselves and debase themselves with that company of sinners. But when Jesus hears their grumblings, he sends a very strong word back to these Pharisees. And Jesus answers these Pharisees by exposing their complete misunderstanding of the nature of the worshiping community. He says to these Pharisees, now you've lost your way. You don't know who you are. You don't understand your own tradition. He says to them, go and learn what this means. At various points in the Gospels, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not understanding their own scriptures, not hearing their own story. If you believed Moses, he says, you would believe me. You err, he says, because you don't understand the scripture. Oh, foolish ones and slow to believe all that the prophets have written. And now he says to these Pharisees, go back to the Scriptures and learn what it means. He says to them, read the book of Hosea. Read what God says to His people. Read God's complaint. Read God's broken heart for Ephraim. Go back, he says, and learn what this means. I have to confess, I wonder how many of us today who keep the Old Testament at arm's length in our personal devotions, how many of us need to hear the Lord's words, go and learn. Go and learn what I've already written to you. 
Jesus quotes to them Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The word mercy here is elios. It's from the Greek Septuagint. In the Hebrew text, the word is chesed. It's a word that means covenant faithfulness, covenant love. And if you read God's complaint throughout Hosea, and especially in Hosea 6, the central problem is a people who have dealt falsely with their God. A people whose love for God is as ephemeral as the morning dew. What will I do with you? Oh, Ephraim, he says, he pleads. Your love is like the morning cloud. You turn away from me so effortlessly. So soon you forget me, my people. I want your love, he says. I don't want your empty ritual. I want you to know me. I don't want your perfunctory service. And because Israel didn't know God and didn't love God, they began to devour each other. Because they rejected the first table of the law, they began viciously to reject the second. The absence of love to God creates the absence of mercy towards his people. And so we read in Hosea 6.8, Gilead is a city of evildoers. It's tracked with blood. My people are devouring one another. In fact, if we step back to Hosea chapter 4, we see the same theme of the absence of this chesed, faithful love to God. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, the Lord has a complaint with the inhabitants of the land. There is not faithfulness. There is not steadfast love. The same term of chapter 6 and the same term that Jesus homes in on here in, in Matthew 9. And there is no knowledge of God, the Lord says. My people, they are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. What knowledge is this? They have forgotten my law, he says in chapter 4, verse 6. Like Adam, they have transgressed my word. They have forgotten my covenant. So you see, what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 9 is very heavy-hitting. Jesus now turns to these Pharisees upon their sneering and their merciless scorn, and he says to them, you don't know God. You don't love God, he says. And because you don't see your sickness, because you don't see the sickness of not loving God, and because you don't see your wound, the wound of not loving God, you have no room in your heart for these sinners with whom I'm eating. It's not there. If you could only lament your own wound, if you could only grieve your own sickness, then you would understand why I'm so compassionate to these sinners. If you could only see your own wound, then you would delight in the compassion and in the mercy 
of God. Luther says we're all Pharisees. Luther says we're all Pharisees, and this account speaks to each of us as such. Brothers and sisters, being part of the church means being part of a people who are sinful. It's the communio sanctorum, the communion of saints, but it's always also the communio peccatorum. It's the community of sinners. But how easy it is for us Pharisee-like to become so preoccupied with the sinner over there, that sinner over there, as distinguished from myself, and to become peevishly unhappy with the present situation that God should actually expect me to rub shoulders with sinners all the time. Sinners who offend me. Sinners who vex me. Sinners who hurt me. Until we go to Scripture and we learn we don't know God as we ought. We don't love God as we ought, and therefore we do not love our brothers and sisters as we ought to do for no other reason. It's always our deficiency to, uh, of love to God that works our deficiency of love to our brothers. And when we hear that word, it's only then that we can hear the words of the gospel. That Jesus comes to save the sick of whom I am the foremost. Brothers and sisters, it should always be the confession of our hearts. My wound seems so much more grievous than yours does. And when I see myself in his hospital, and when I see the Lord compassionately tending to my own festering wounds, all of a sudden, I am all of a sudden glad that I am not alone. And when I see the sinner in bed next to me, I'm not mistaken whatsoever about their wound. I see it. It's gross and it's festering and it smells foul. But I am suddenly so glad that they're receiving the same tender care as I am, even as I look at them and say, my wound seems so much worse than theirs does. There's no other gospel way as we delight that my brother gets the same care of the divine physician. For I've become convinced with all gratitude that Jesus heals all wounds. <laughs> my brothers and sisters, Jesus heals all wounds. Not long ago at the historical Keith Ranch, I took a picture of an old advertisement. It was a turn-of-the-century medicine. It read, Hanford's Balsam of Myrrh. And it had this long description beneath it which said this. It, was, it said, heals galls, cuts, bruises, kicks, puffs, scratches, thrush, etc. Removes proud flesh, prevents gangrene, cleans old sores, and heals them. Money back if wanted. Beloved, Jesus removes proud flesh. He removes gangrene. He heals old sores. He cleans them. He heals all wounds. And no need for money back. 
because it is all free, even as it is all effective. Brothers and sisters, at Christ's church, we are the community of the sick. We are the community of the wounded. But thanks be to God, for Christ's sake, we are also increasingly the community of the healed. And Jesus comes to us today to recline at table, and he has promised that whenever we meet in his name, to do this in remembrance of him, he has promised us that he will identify himself with us in our shame. And he will recline with us, and he will take our deformity and our shame, and he will lead us back to the faithful love of his Father increasingly as he makes us better. As he makes us better. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.